0: we are continuing today in our study of the book of Isaiah, and we are in chapter 45 today. So you can go ahead and open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 45. And once again today, uh, one of the big theological issues that's addressed in our text is aimed straight at a topic that is uh, totally relevant and, uh, and contemporary, and it's a place where today's modern culture and philosophical worldview is challenged by the message of the prophet. And the area that God challenges through his spokesperson in this passage is an aspect of modern open-minded tolerance that says that everyone's opinions and beliefs are equally valid and it is not a good thing to criticize anyone else's beliefs. To tell someone that you are right and they are wrong, especially when it comes to uh, things like religious belief, is not acceptable behavior in our culture. So what does Isaiah have to say about that? Does he agree that someone else's culture and their religious beliefs are off limits when it comes to debating and discussing about true and false? So that's one of the topics that... uh, Isaiah deals with in the passage that we're going to look at today. Um, And in today's passage, God also responds to people's complaints that they don't feel like, they don't like the way that God is doing things. Um, In this passage, God fulfills his promises to his people, but not in the way that they wanted or expected him to do it. And so people question whether God is really doing the right thing Uh, and doing it in the right way, and God gives his response in this passage. And then the third thing we're going to see here is, uh, again, one of the main themes of the whole book of Isaiah, which is God's universal offer of salvation. Remember, the title of this series in Isaiah is God's story of hope, and the theme of hope will be strong again here in chapter 45. So, so let's pray and then uh, get into the text. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts and open our minds so that we can understand your word and understand what you, uh, what message you have for us from your prophet Isaiah tonight. And I pray that you would uh, give us the courage and the wisdom to apply these things to our lives. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So uh, let's uh, start right off here in Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. Now I've got to stop right there before we go any further, because there are two very surprising things happening right away here in the very first uh, half of a sentence of Isaiah chapter 45. And if you follow Clearwater Church on Facebook, you might have seen that there was a post about this and you could comment about it and things. If you're not following us on Facebook, you should be. So make sure you are. But anyway, um, there's two really surprising things here. Uh, And and, uh, the first one is that God speaks to his anointed here. He calls him uh, his anointed. And his anointed is Cyrus. Now, God's anointed is a very special title in the Bible. A couple of verses down, it talks about how uh, Cyrus has been given a a, a title of honor. Um, In the Hebrew Bible, the word for that God's anointed is the word Messiah. And in Greek, uh, the word for that is Christ. And so Cyrus is here... Um, described as the Messiah, as the Christ, the anointed one. And and, and that's a surprising thing. It's it's Cyrus has described this way. Now, who is Cyrus? Well, it's not the guy with the achy, breaky heart and the big muscles and the mullet and the famous daughter. That's a different Cyrus altogether. Um, This Cyrus was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, who uh, lived and ruled in the mid 500s BC. And he was about the most powerful person in the world at that time and is well known uh, from history. Uh, He was the one who conquered the Babylonians and brought that empire to an end. And there's a famous archeological find called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's a clay cylinder uh, it's about the size of a football, except not quite as pointy on the ends, and uh, and it's made out of clay, and it has cuneiform writing on it in the Akkadian language, and it tells some of the history of Cyrus, and uh, and this was is 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 cool because it's an actual written history from this time period that we still have the original writing available to us today. But in that writing, uh, it tells. Uh, Uh, about some of the accomplishments of Cyrus. And he specifically gives credit there to God for his victories, but not the God that it talks about in the Bible. The God that he gives credit to is Marduk, the God of the Medes. Uh, And so this guy is clearly not a follower of the God of the Bible. In fact, just a few verses further down, uh, still speaking to Cyrus, the Bible states flat out that you do not acknowledge me. And yet, God calls him his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. That is surprising. But you're going to have to wait for the explanation of what's going on there because uh, that's one of the major themes of the passage of what's going on there and how Cyrus is, is God's uh, anointed. And so we'll talk about that as we get to it further on down in the text. But the second surprising thing here in those first uh, couple of lines of chapter 45 is that Cyrus is mentioned by name, both in this verse and two other times in the passage, he is mentioned by name. Um, and that's surprising because as I mentioned, Uh, Cyrus lived in the middle of the 6th century BC, but Isaiah wrote this about 100 years before Cyrus was born. Now, there's quite a few predictive prophecies in the Bible, um, so that's not uh, entirely unique or different. But there are not many that rise to the level of specificity of actually naming a foreign king a century before his birth, And then predicting some of his actions, his successes in conquering and and, and, and getting an empire for himself, and some very specific policies that he would enact after he established his empire. Now, of course, if we believe in the God of Genesis chapter 1, who said, Let there be light, and there was light, and who created. The entire universe and everything in it simply by speaking it into existence, then it isn't too hard for us to imagine that he could also know ahead of time the name of this king and what he was going to do. But still, it's pretty surprising and cool that this prophecy is so specific and powerful in the way that it is given and in the way that it was fulfilled. And this text makes an important point about this as we go on in the chapter, as it refers back to that and says, how do you know that God is the real God? Because he was able to name Cyrus uh, beforehand. So let's uh, let's move on in the passage, past these uh, two big surprising things that happened in that first sentence, and see how Isaiah develops these ideas. So we'll start from the beginning again. It says... This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored In secret places. God is promising to take Cyrus by the hand and give him all kinds of success, especially in the defeating of enemy nations and kingdoms in battle and plundering them. And of course, that's exactly what Cyrus did. The Medes and the Persians uh, became the greatest empire in the world at that time, even taking out the great Babylonian Empire. In the book of Daniel, which uh, chronologically overlaps a bit with uh, what Isaiah is prophesying about here, um, it tells the story of how the king of Babylon reacted when Cyrus and his army arrived to try to take the city. Um, The king of Babylon was not worried at all. He was so confident that Babylon was an impregnable fortress that he just threw a party and decided to get everybody together and have a good time because he was not worried at all that Cyrus and his army were going to be able to uh, get into Babylon and conquer them. But the details of that story, which is a pretty interesting story, are for another story at another time. But the point here is that Babylon was supposed to be unconquerable. But when God promises, quote, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut, I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. Guess what? No fortress is impregnable when God is assisting you like that. Now, the end of verse 3 uh, gives the first of three reasons that are stated in the text here why God is going To do this, why he is going to give Cyrus all of this success. It says, uh, I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. God wants Cyrus to know that he is the Lord. Specifically, the fact that God has named him in this prophecy is meant to demonstrate to Cyrus that he is the real God. Because God cares about this pagan king who worships Marduk. He wants him to come to the realization that Marduk is not a real God and that he should abandon his idols and turn to God. God wants to save sinners. And this particular sinner was given a special personal invitation from God to come to a knowledge of the truth. And even though he doesn't do this very often, as that is calling someone out by name with a miraculous prophecy and, uh, and inviting them to saving faith, this is God's will for all who are not yet worshipers of God. In the biblical book of 2nd Peter, it tells us that he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isaiah has had a lot to say about judgment and punishment and sin. But the story of hope says that God does not want to punish. He wants to reveal himself to people and bring them to saving faith. And that is God's heart. It's his heart for people from long ago, like Cyrus, who worshiped idols, as well as for those who live in Anchorage today who just don't care about God. God wants to reveal himself to them and to save them from their sins. In verse four, we see the second Of the three reasons why God is doing these things for Cyrus, it says, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. That's a way to refer to the nation of Israel as Jacob or Israel. Um, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. God has chosen Cyrus called him by name to do his will for the sake of his own chosen people. Whether Cyrus ends up responding to the evidence and the offer uh, that God is giving him, uh, God has another purpose, no matter what Cyrus chooses to do, for what he is doing for and through Cyrus. God is working out his plan for his people. See, they had been conquered by the Babylonians and sent into exile as God's punishment for their sins. But God had promised that that punishment would be temporary and that he would restore them to their homeland and to the worship of God in a new temple at Jerusalem. And Cyrus would be God's man to make that happen. And that's why he's referred to as God's anointed one because he is the chosen one to end the exile and to return God's people to their land and to begin the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Verses 5 and 6 contain the third and final reason why God is doing these things for Cyrus. It says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God wants Cyrus to know that he is the one and only God. He wants his people to be restored to their land so that they may worship him again in the temple. But the climactic reason why God is raising up Cyrus is to reveal himself to all people all over the world from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting. God wants all people to know that I am the Lord and there is no other. And that section finishes off with God calling forth his blessings and salvation to fall on the people of the earth. Here it is in verse seven and eight. It says, I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish within it. I, the Lord, have created it. God is bringing about his salvation. His righteousness will flourish. This will happen because God has willed it to to be so. But the next verse reveals that there are some people who have not welcomed God's blessing of salvation. Here's what it says in uh, starting with verse 9. It says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens and I marshaled their starry hosts. So, God hears the complaints that people are bringing, and he does not negotiate or explain himself or try to justify his actions. People, this is God that we are talking about. Who are we to challenge his wisdom? The creator of the whole universe, including you, is beyond The questioning, just like a potter, is beyond the questioning of a piece of clay. So how does that make you feel? Are you satisfied with that answer? When what God is doing or promising to do does not quite seem right, are you okay with God simply saying, look, I'm God, you're not, so you're not in a position to question me? This is a pretty revealing test of your relationship with God. Do you feel like God owes you an explanation for what he does? Do you think that if he explained it, you'd be able to understand his reasons? Do you think that you are able to judge whether or not God's actions are good and just so that uh, you will only put your faith in him if... The things that he says and does pass the test of your own judgment. Now, before you say no to all those things, think about it a little bit. If God, through the Bible, teaches something that doesn't seem fair and good and right to you, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to just accept it and say to God, I trust you, you're wise, I'm not. Your understanding is much greater than mine. Your sense of justice and goodness is is perfect. Mine is sometimes wrong. Therefore, if what seems right to me is different from what seems right to you, I must be the one who's wrong. Can you say that to God? Because it's not always easy. It's easy when you're actually, uh, you know, when you're not having any conflicts with God and, and the things that you are hearing from him fit right in with what you've always thought and believed, then no problem. Yeah, oh yeah, I submit to God. But when there is a actual conflict with God's teaching, when there is a real impasse between your own ethics and God's ethics, that's when this gets real, huh? Do you really... Trust God. Or do you trust yourself? God says, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and mankind on it. My own hands have stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. This is kind of a very small version, uh, but it's basically the same response that Job gets in the book of Job, when God finally answers Job's questioning of God, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? But that one goes on for several chapters of that kind of stuff. Here we just get a couple of verses. And that's, that's the answer. Uh, we must submit to God. In verse 13 here, God restates what appears to be the issue that people were having a problem with. He says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. God is going to bring about the end of the exile and uh, he is going to do this through his anointed Messiah, Cyrus. Um, This does not make sense to some people. Uh, This is not what they thought that God was going to do, or what they thought he should do. The anointed one should be the new leader of the people of Israel, the new heir to David's throne not some pagan king from Iran who worships Marduk. How can such a person be called God's Christ and used to bring about God's salvation? It was one thing to see, okay, yeah, the conquering armies of the Babylonians were being used by God to punish us for our sins. We can understand that. But now to say, that another foreign king, the king of Persia, was God's savior? That just doesn't work. Plus, there's more problems with this. If the one who restores God's people to Jerusalem and sets the exiles free is another foreign king, then the people aren't exactly free, are they? They have simply exchanged one foreign pagan ruler who worships idols for another one. Yes, they're free to move back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and have the temple and things. But they won't be an independent nation. They're going to be ruled by governors who are appointed by Cyrus. That's not the salvation that the people expected. It's not the blessing that they wanted. This was a major challenge to the worldview of the Jews of that day. But they needed to change their worldview. God cared about restoring them to their land. But he also cared about Cyrus, this foreign king. And about all the people from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. And somehow God had decided that using a pagan king to serve his purposes would be better than restoring a king in the Davidic line at this time. And they were wrong to quarrel with their maker about how he was bringing about salvation. But for us today, there's a different aspect of God's salvation as declared here that's a challenge to our worldview and makes us want to quarrel with God about how he is bringing salvation. Salvation. I'm going to read several verses here from chapter 45 that illustrate the point that, uh, that rubs us wrong or rubs our, our current cultural values wrong. So here it is from verse 5 first. It says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Verse 6 From the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 18, this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 21, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none but me. Verse 23, before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. This isn't very inclusive. <laughs> in fact, it's the opposite of inclusive. And, and, and don't miss the fact that Cyrus who follows the religion of his own culture, he's already got his own background, his own culture, his own belief system. He is called on to give all that up and turn to God and acknowledge him alone. And the rest of the world as well. All those who follow other gods, other religions, other belief systems need to abandon those beliefs and turn to God. Jesus, and that is not very tolerant, according to our culture's way of thinking. Actually, it's Cyrus who who fit fairly well into the kind of thinking that is uh, is is promoted in our culture today. I mentioned earlier that the Cyrus cylinder, that uh, clay cylinder records his victories, and he praises Marduk for giving him all these, these, uh, these victories and for aiding him. But in the biblical book of Ezra, which is another book that overlaps historically with the, uh, Cyrus here, um, in Ezra chapter 1, there's the, they quote the text of an official statement from Cyrus, in which he says this from Ezra chapter 1. He says, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to explain more about it. He says in this passage... The God of Israel is the one who has given me all the kingdoms of the world. He's the one who has blessed me. Cyrus has no problem combining his own beliefs with the beliefs of other cultures in his empire. He was more than willing to worship his own God while the Jews worship their God. He'll do his thing. They do their thing. No problem. He would even assist with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and would give the Jewish God credit for his successes. Cyrus saw no reason to offend anyone by refusing to accept the validity of their beliefs. He says, in my mind, it was Marduk who gave me this. In your mind, it was Yahweh? No problem. The Persian way and the Jewish way are both equally valid ways of seeing things and and of uh, understanding the world. So Cyrus, he fits in just fine with modern culture. Isaiah, not so much. So, what should we do? What should we do? The Bible's teaching does not seem to fit uh, with what seems right to us. Can't God just accept people who follow other religions? Can't he just see the worship of Marduk as simply a somewhat distorted but still valid attempt to worship him? Or in our modern time, can't we see Mormonism or Islam or Buddhism as just other ways to try to worship God? We don't have to say that there's many different gods out there. We can just say that these are imperfect ways to worship God the God of the Bible. After all, even our own worship is imperfect, right? We can be humble and we can say we're not perfect. Our understanding of God is incomplete and we Christians do not follow it completely and perfectly. These other religions could be seen as not all that different. They're also imperfect ways of worshiping God. That's what we kind of are drawn to But that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says they must all turn away from their idols and to God. But here's the thing. Here's what you need to do if you start to feel like what the Bible is saying here is in conflict with my own sense of what is right. Um, The first thing you need to do is to make sure that you have properly understood the Bible. Because sometimes people misunderstand the Bible and and actually our own sense of uh, what is right and wrong is actually quite in keeping with what the Bible says. So we need to ask ourselves, does it really teach what you think it does? And just because you hear a pastor or a teacher telling you that the Bible says something, doesn't mean that it actually says that necessarily. Sometimes pastors get it wrong. So if you are really disturbed by this exclusive teaching that there's only one God and salvation is only available through him, the first thing you need to do is to spend some time studying the Bible to see if it really says that. Don't take my word for it. Study it for yourself. However, in this case, my personal level of confidence that I understand correctly what the Bible is teaching on this issue is pretty high. I think that if you study the Bible, you will find the same thing. There is only one true God and one true religion. Salvation is found only in the God of the Bible. So now what? Will you quarrel with your maker? Will you be the lump of clay that tells the potter that he's doing it wrong? Or will you submit to God and admit your own inability to see with all wisdom? Will you say to God, you are righteous. Holy is the Lord, even when I don't understand your ways. I want to conclude with what I consider the climax of this chapter in verse, uh, a couple of statements from verse 20 and 22. It says, Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none but me. Turn to me, And be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God wants all people everywhere to turn to Him and be saved. And just as He sent His chosen servant, His his anointed one, Cyrus, to save His people from the exile, He has sent His greater servant, the great, true, ultimate Messiah to save all people who will turn to him. All the ends of the earth need to turn to Jesus. They need to put their faith in him and his payment that justifies us from our sins. God has provided redemption by his Messiah, and we must all turn to him and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a great and compassionate God who provides payment for our sins and offers us all mercy and salvation. I pray that you would work in our hearts, work in our minds, so that we can learn to submit to your wisdom and your truth as we seek to follow you. I pray this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.